gambling is often a tricky topic. It got Pete Rose thrown out of baseball and recently made news when Michigan State University announced a betting partnership with Caesars Entertainment. As with everything, new media technologies have only complicated the conversations and regulations we have around games of skill or games of chance. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Dr. Mike Orkin. Orkin is a professor of mathematics at Berkeley City College and professor of statistics emeritus at California State University, where he was professor and chair of the statistics department for many years before becoming a consultant and nationally known authority on probability and gambling games. Since then, he's appeared in numerous forms of media, ranging from CBS Evening News to NBC's Dateline to a Google Tech Talk series. He's also the author of several books, and in November, Orkin authored an article for Chance, examining the intersection of games of chance, games of skill, and new tech. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. It's it's so nice to have you here. Happy to be here. I'm just going to ask you to explain what's the difference between a game of skill and a game of chance. That seems sort of crucial to understanding your chance article. Well, there there are a couple of different definitions. Uh, One is a definition that's sort of been in place by various regulatory uh, agencies who don't in the past haven't really liked gambling games online or in other forms in in, uh, their states or federally. There's this rule that's been around for years called a material degree of chance, whatever that means. It's never been clearly defined, but if a game has a material degree of chance, then it's uh, not good for me or uh, John or just a private citizen to start a gambling operation, unless you're in Nevada and get a gaming license there. Now, this this rule is slowly losing some of its impact because of a couple things. One, because there's so much money in it, in fantasy gambling and other types of uh, wagering, mainly sports wagering. That's really what we're talking about right now, but it spills over into other things. And so the Federal government even sort of relaxed this uh, powerful law about internet uh, sports wagering, and now it's sort of and, and left it up to the states instead of making it a federal problem for people who want to introduce fantasy sports and other uh, sports types type of wagering. The big players right now are the fantasy uh, sports uh, companies, FanDuel and DraftKings. But since the federal government relaxed its restrictions, um, you see some of the big uh, gambling uh, operations from uh, Nevada, where all this, everything is in this area, in this space is legal, such as Caesars, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, Rosemary, um, getting into the act in, in many states, you can, you can make legal sports bets about the outcome of games online, which was not possible up until a year or two ago. You know, I, th- I thought that, you know, in, in reading through some of your materials, you had that some discussion of the idea of, uh, uh, of the scale, a gradient of, of chance to skill. 
So could you yeah, talk so, about yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. anchors of that scale and some of the the <laughs> the sports that are there? I mean, I think it's easy to anchor it. It's really hard to think about where you, how you order it within yeah. that. Yeah, the chance versus skill spectrum has been around for a while. Um, it was invented by regulators who don't want to don't want to legalize uh, gaming. And I, I actually have done some consulting over the the last number last few years. Um, and I, I, as I mentioned in my chance article, I testified in a case on the East Coast about illegal poker machines. It had nothing to do with sports betting and it had nothing to do with the internet. But they asked me in court, the judge asked me, or the, I forget it was the judge or the, the attorney representing um, the state, asked me to draw what he called the chance skill spectrum. The chance skill spectrum means you start at, let's say, roulette, which is all chance, and end at some actual uh, event game like uh, bowling or golf, not not the betting on it, but the actual event. And of course, even, in, 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 and it's kind of silly because where does blackjack uh, rank and compared to poker? And it's just hard to really understand what it means. Plus, even an actual game, forgetting about gambling, even if you, if you have two equal players in a, a golf game or a bowling game or a football game, two equal teams, um, then the result is somewhat due to chance. And so there's chance in every type of game, whether you're betting or not betting, whatever. So that so-called chance skill spectrum is kind of silly in place. So the, the other definition of chance versus skill is a statistical definition, which I um, used in a number of my uh, consulting projects, which is just you look at player data and see if some players exceed what luck will allow. So you can be lucky in a game of chance or even a game that has skill, but you can measure statistically by doing a hypothesis test and a p-value, which statisticians know about, whether a player in a game, given enough games, whether their win percentage has gone above um, what the range of luck is. Um, and that's easy enough to measure. And so if you have, a, if you have enough data, you can tell whether there's uh, skill in that definition. So just to just make sure that we're, it's, it's real clear to a listener, here the player that you're referring to is not a competitor in some sporting event, but it's actually the person placing the wager. That's correct, John. So, so I mentioned a minute ago, you know, in the chance skill spectrum, yeah, I, I mentioned players being actual um, competitors in a sport, but now I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about competitors in a gambling game, whether they're playing against the house or in some of these um, situations, you're playing against other players. But still, the question is the same. Is your win percentage, this is distilling it down to something that's easy to understand, is your win percentage better than what luck would allow? In other words, um, you know, people have diagnostic tests um, like in medicine, you get a blood test. If, if you're, um, the measure of some characteristic of your blood is beyond some range, then it's weird. And this, you can do the same thing statistically with luck versus skill. If it goes beyond that range, your win percentage does, it's weird. And the weirdness can be explained by skill or cheating. 
<laughs> or cheating, yes. I like that. So I, I'm going to uh, uh, open up as uh, I love blackjack and poker. Um, I'm bad at both, and I don't play for real money, but I'm, I love them, and I grew up playing them with my dad. And so as I, and I just am unlucky. Right. And so in uh, the piece you wrote about Mega Millions, you talk about how luck is a group phenomenon. And I wondered if you could sort of talk me through that to help me understand how my bad luck is part of something else. Or am I just weird, uh, you know, somewhere in that weird spectrum? Well, no. Um, first of all, when I, what I was talking about, Mega Millions is the, the um, multi-state lottery that everyone probably knows about. And the chance of winning the Mega Millions lottery if you buy a single ticket is about one in 303 million, which is um, a very difficult thing to it, There's no skill involved in lotteries. You can pick your favorite numbers, but it doesn't really have anything to do with your chance of winning. And so, um, in fact, the chance is so low if you buy 50 tickets a week, you'll win the Mega Millions jackpot on the average of once every 116 a thousand years. But it's my year, Mike. It's my <laughs> But why are there winners? Because there are winners. So I can give you all these analogies about uh, how unlikely it is to win the Mega Millions jackpot. But there are winners fairly often. Um, and the reason is because so many people buy tickets. And that's actually part of a phenomenon called the law of very, of very large numbers, which was sort of coined by Mosteller and Diaconis, who are two statisti well-known statisticians, um, a number of years ago in a paper, sometimes also called the law of truly large numbers, as opposed to a famous statistical uh, result called the law of large numbers. And the law of truly large numbers says, uh, informally, given enough opportunity, any weird thing will happen just due to chance. And so that applies here with the Mega Millions Lottery, which is a game of pure chance. Um, the opportunity is so many people buy tickets. So if you have enough tickets sold, in fact, when the jackpot gets high, there may be a couple hundred million tickets bought, um, there will be winners. So now, now I'll answer Rosemary's question. When you have a lottery winner hidden in the background are about the chances of about one in 303 million to, that you'll win. So hidden in the background are about almost 303 million losers. You don't just win it on your own. If I bought a single ticket and nobody else bought tickets and I won, then I'd probably be cheating because there isn't enough opportunity for me alone if nobody else is buying tickets. Now, Rosemary, you were playing games of skill, um, blackjack and poker. Blackjack is very clearly um, measured as a game of skill due to the work of Ed Thorpe, a mathematician, math professor at UC Irvine. I think he's retired now. Um, he wrote a book called Beat the Dealer. In 19, it was published in 1962 based on computer simulations, which is what um, mathematicians and statisticians use now for problems that are too complicated to do analytically, um, Beat the Dealer gave specific blackjack strategy so you could actually win in the long run. Most people, probably like you, Rosemary, who don't want to spend the time to memorize and use Thorpe's theory or the, or the theories that came out, or, or strategy or the strategies that came after that, 
Well, probably, if you keep playing, you'll probably lose against a skilled player. So you're not weird. You just didn't take the time to learn a card counting strategy, I, I would guess. Um, I We are just playing for buttons. We're just playing for buttons. So really, there's no reason for me to try to get better at and it. And one button is worth 10 bucks, right? Yeah. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking games of skill and games of chance with Mike Morgan. So, so now, Rosemary, I, th- I think we've just we've just found out what you should put on your your uh, wish list for your favorite book vendor. You know, now you can get your uh, get your gaming read on you know, as you think about your travels. I'm going to get better now that I know this book is out there. I'm going to yeah. pick it up. Ed Thorpe's book, which was published in 1962, is still in print. And if you go to Amazon and look up blackjack books, you'll find a bunch of them. Thorpe's is the original one, and it's still maybe a little more comp- his strategy may be a little more complicated than some more recent ones, but they're all pretty much the same. You keep track of the high cards and the low cards as they come out of the deck and make decisions accordingly uh, using the fact that the dealer in blackjack has to play by, if you're in a casino, the dealer has to play by a fixed strategy. Um, They have to do certain things and you don't. So you can take advantage of that flexibility. And sometimes if the deck is not shuffled after every hand, sometimes you will encounter a positive expectation for that configuration of cards, which means a winning strategy. But you have to be very patient and you have to be very good at keeping track of things. You know, I, I did like the, the various analogies that you were using within your Mega Millions piece as you were talking about kind of just the rarity of, of, yeah. of success here. I thought that was really nice. Now, now most of the, the types of gaming that, that you're talking about, particularly in your chance piece, is more related to things that are more frequent. You know, so you're within the lottery setting, you're really living in the world of, of pure chance. Whereas as you're getting into these other these fantasy games, you're dealing in a play. Ideally, there's some skill involved. So could you talk about some of the the fantasy games that that you were investigating as part of this chance piece? Right. So the one that I was talking about in the chance article was a specific project that had to do with what are called parlay bets. Um, And a parlay bet means you bet on more than one thing at the same time. Uh, There's more than one event that you bet on, and all the events have to come out winners as far as your bet goes in order for you to to win the wager. Um, Now, there's still some um, difficulty in actually betting on the outcomes of games, uh, whether a team wins or loses, because of this uh, long-time fear of uh, games being thrown by people who have enough money to pay off the players. Now it's kind of silly in the major in like the NFL or Major League Baseball because the players make so much money they're not about to risk their career by um, having some um, underworld character offer the money to throw a game. It's not that easy anyway. Um, but the type of uh, the type of wager or proposition that I was looking at in this particular in, in the chance piece was a two-way parlay bet, which means you bet on two events. And these this project involved events happening within a game. So if it's a basketball game, you could you could say that uh, Steph Curry makes the next three-point shot and something else. Um, and so. That kind of wager, which you, in, in this project you were wagering against uh, in, in this sort of con- controlled situation, but um, the idea is if you win, so 
if you don't know anything about about it, or if it's, there's just no skill in this, um, that the point spreads or whatever the odds are, um, are are good, or however you're you're betting this, um, if there are two events and each has a 50-50 chance, if you don't know anything, then the chance is one-fourth that you'll win the, the bet. Now, that's, that depends on what the bet is, of course. So what you do is you look at the player data, and if a player gets higher than 25% win percentage over time, there has to be enough data, and it has to be, if the win percentage is higher, high enough to rule out chance, which you can't do in a lottery or in roulette or in craps or in any game of pure chance, but you can do in a game of skill. But that's the challenge, to see if there are players who get a higher win percentage than they should or than they would just by being lucky. And if there are such players, in this case, analyzing these uh, parlay bets, if there are such players, then that shows that there are skilled players because someone is not going to get that high of a win percentage just by being lucky. And you can do that statistically. So could you expand a little bit on the, the outcomes? You gave one example of a particular player hitting a three-point shot, which is certainly would be less than a half probably in terms of what you might expect. But but what are when you did this exploration, what were two of the outcomes you might have been oh, exploring? Yeah, so, so actually, when I, when I mentioned something like Steph Curry making a, the next three-point shot, there would be odds associated with that. So to try to make it be 50-50. So the easiest explanation that probably most people would understand is the point spread system in, in football. The point spread system is a system where you add points to the underdog to try to make the game a 50-50 proposition. When you try to compute if someone is skilled, you would see if they're doing better than 50-50 with the assumption that the um, the point spread is fair or accurate. Let's put it that way. So it was a similar thing with this project. The, and in this case, so, so there are different versions of this, some with, um, I've worked on different projects that are all involve the same kind of thing. And when it's a one play, when it's player versus player, then one's taking one side, one's taking the other, which was not the case here, then if neither player is skilled, then then it's a 50-50 proposition also. That's another way to look at it. Mike, I'm going to ask a Richard Campbell question. So it's not related to the stats, but as I... So I, I'm also a, a big football fan. I love NFL. And the thing that I've noticed the last several years is that there's been this increase in, in commercials for DraftKings and other kinds of, of gambling apps. That growing up, I can't imagine having seen those kinds of commercials because it seemed like I remember Pete Rose being thrown out of baseball is like a really big sports memory for me. I'm from Southern Ohio. My family were Reds fans. Like it was a huge deal. And then now, you know, every Sunday, every football game, like there's there's commercials. And I wonder if... And this may not be something you could feel comfortable talking about, but it just it feels like a Richard Campbell question, John. But do, I don't know. Do you think the fact that there are all these apps and all these things that have gamified gambling or these skills of chance, like these various things, do you think it's made it more socially acceptable to participate? It, it's, it, you know, loan sharks and like people who go to Vegas and smoke cigarettes and like, you know, play you know, play craps in like velvet suits. That was my idea of people who gambled as a child, right? Now, I have some good friends who are odds makers in Vegas, so none of them will wear velvet suits and they don't smoke, so. Well, but but I but that's, I think that's sort of like the general idea, right? They're kind of seedy people who are doing seedy things that we think are socially unacceptable. 
And now, you know, every Sunday I see these commercials for DraftKings. And I wonder if you feel like the technology making it more accessible maybe has made it more acceptable to, like, participate in this? Well, yeah, the, the technology is part of it, for sure. Um, but there's another part of it, too, and that's the government relaxing its regulation on online activities like FanDuel and uh, DraftKings, which are not in which you're not betting. They, they sort of got in uh, in a very clever way um, because they're not you're, when you when you do fantasy sports with FanDuel or DraftKings, you're not you're not wagering on the outcome of any game. You're putting together your own team and you hope your own team will amass enough points during the course of the season so that you'll be the winner, which is somehow more acceptable than betting on the outcome of a game. Now, but because the government relaxed the internet gambling laws, FanDuel and DraftKings went through that little open door and now dominate commercials and uh, and getting maybe not dominate, but they have they spend millions and millions of dollars on commercials to try to make it more socially acceptable. So when you watch the FanDuel and DraftKings, and now Caesars has sportsbook has an ad too. You know they want you to not think about the guys in the velvet suits smoking the cigars, sitting around, standing around the craps table and stuff like that. They don't want you to think of it that way. And so, and by the way, Pete Rose would still not be able to bet on uh, games if he were in the, in the business, because if you're part of a professional sports organization, there's a strict taboo on gambling on games. You know, I think it's, it's, been, it's been interesting to watch this evolution of, of fantasy leagues and fantasy sports, which is a consequence of this technology. But, but the, the, the interest that that generates in following more than just your local team is amazing. You know, all of a sudden, there are two teams playing that you have no connection to other than the fact that I have player X on this team and Y, I have the defense on the other team. So it's, it, it changes kind of your interaction and your relationship with kind of league sport. Right. It's been a huge boon to professional sports who used to say, oh, no, we don't want to do this because it, it blemishes the game or hurts the integrity of the game. But that's simply not true. And also now, as of course, as, as everyone can see, you have tons of money being poured into things like DraftKings and FanDuel and lots and lots, millions of people who are formerly not interested in uh, betting in the sports uh, space are making wagers. And, um, and so it's been good for the sport. And it also has sort of undermined the traditional bookie, uh, an underworld character who hangs out at the, in the bars and you go and make your bets. They, these people still exist, but they've been, their profit margin has been cut into by the legality of betting. So it's actually helped the integrity of games rather than hurt the integrity of games to make uh, some of these things legal. Well, so, so Mike, Rosemary can still hook you up if you need that kind of connection. That's right. I know all the CD people, <laughs> right. including you, John. <laughs> You're in, well, actually, I, 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 was, uh, I live in the, in, the, in the Berkeley area, and uh, there used to be a restaurant in uh, Berkeley called the China Station, which is down by the, tr the train tracks in South Berkeley, and there was a sports bar there. So a lot of people went and bet there. This was before any of it was legal. And there was this one guy, the bookie, the bookie, the main bookie there sort of controlled this horse book, who was known as the plumber. And so I thought, oh, my God, you know, what is this guy flushes people down the toilet or something <laughs> if they don't pay or sticks their head in the toilet? I didn't know, didn't know why. It was, 
called the Point Road. But I used to go down there with some friends, and we'd every now and then make a bet on a game. And it was just an interesting scene at this uh, restaurant, uh, in the, at the sports bar uh, next adjoining the restaurant. And so uh, one night after I'd gotten to know this guy a little bit, I asked him, why do they call you the plumber? And he said, because I am a plumber. I'm a plumber during the day, and I come here at night, and I'm a bookie. <laughs> not, not nearly as threatening oh to know the backstory, is there? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, Mike, I, I, I want to much just, less ominous. <laughs> yeah, much less <laughs> I got a quick, I, I want to follow up on, um, you had talked about in a, in a talk that you had given about kind of some data mining strategies to possibly identify some wagers that that might be beneficial. So you know, your play if your team lost last week and they're playing another team that didn't cover the point spread, then bet on them to lose. You know that or not to cover the spread. That that idea of of exploring this incredible space of of options and alternatives, and then maybe seeing if there's nuggets there. You know, has has that proven to be useful? Is that something that people have benefited from? Well, it's that sort of a. It, there's not a clear answer to that. Um, a friend and I developed some software like that a number of years ago for um, pro football and pro basketball. We, we did exactly the same data mining types of things that you just mentioned. So you would look and see if a team, and it was all about covering the point spread. If a team covers the spread, if they lost their last two games and are playing at home, stuff like that. So there may have been a few things. So, so the software would actually look at win percentages as um, and with enough games would look at um, Z-scores for the win percentages, assuming a 50-50 chance and that's a statistical way to measure how strong something is and so so the software would automatically um, go through the sift through the data truly data mining um, at night we even had a, a part of it called the night shift which would look all night at your or whenever you want to um, and find high z-score results and would find some amazing things. But um, the problem is when you do things like that is that you'll also uncover lots of random results that don't have any in terms of betting. And so most of them, so we did a little study and most of these results are sort of random. But there are some factors people look at like whether a team is due to win or whether a team is hot and will win again, sort of opposite strategies and what the weather is like. So um, this friend of mine uh, named Roxy Roxborough used to be the head odds maker in Las Vegas for many years. He's that is a great now. name. <laughs> yeah, if you look him up, you'll see he's, he was, uh, he's a very well-known character. So he, they would keep track of everything because they set the point spreads. So there was this guy, this gambler, who would, who would call him from time to time asking about certain things. So one week he called him, so this was one week he called him and asked, this was on a Sunday morning just before the games, and he called Roxy, who's in, in Las Vegas, and said, what's the weather like in Chicago? Because I'm thinking of betting on the Bears. And Roxy said, where are you? And the guy said, I'm in Chicago. And he said, why don't you open the window? <laughs> Because he's in Las Vegas. But anyway, so some people are very, very, uh, pay a lot of attention to these sort of side factors. Man, if you are a Browns fan waiting for the Browns to win because they are due, you're going to wait a long time. I speak right. as a lifelong so, Browns fan. <laughs> right. So it's uh, so there's this, there's this well-known uh, 
phenomenon called the gambler's fallacy, which states that, uh, roughly speaking, since the law of averages says things will average out in the long run, if you see uh, a lot of, let's say, losses of the, by the Browns, then um, just, just random stuff, then they're due to win. But of course, that's completely false. And that's why it's called the gambler's fallacy. So, I mean, there may be some factors in skilled games, like in football or basketball, that do influence what's going to happen. But I haven't, I, I used to know a lot of people who were uh, sort of technical gamblers on sports in um, the Las Vegas world. And some of them won a little bit, but I don't know anybody who made a killing at it. They mainly made money by selling tips to games. They were touts, which means they sell their picks for the games or tips on who would win. That's how they made their money. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. And I'm so sad because I feel like we could have talked to you for at least another half hour. Well, my pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 